Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Rick. Uh, this is the, uh, the, the Tolkien talk, which, ironically, given the centenary of the First World War, is the one where I don't talk about the war, or I do mention it. Um, if you hear it click, I've got to turn the side over. <coughs> right. It should be recording now. Right on. Tolkien's Middle Earth has just turned 100. Most people might think it began with the publication of The Hobbit in 1937, but the 24th of September 1914 was the day Middle-earth came into being, with the words, Erendal sprang up from the ocean's cup in the gloom of the mid-world's rim. The opening lines of a poem, the 22-year-old Tolkien called The Voyage of Erendal, the Evening Star. And uh, you'll find uh, that top left on your handout. Erendel sprang up from the ocean's cup in the gloom of the mid-world's rim. From the door of night, as a ray of light leapt over the twilight brim, and launching his bark like a silver spark from the golden fading sand, down the sunlit breath of day's fiery death, he sped from Westerland. The poem, written at Phoenix Farm in Gedling, Nottinghamshire, the home of Tolkien's aunt, hurtles on for a further five stanzas but reveals nothing of the background or motives of this mysterious character, Erendel. Neither elves nor hobbits were yet in Tolkien's mind. But the star mariner who sails off the world's edge is remembered in The Lord of the Rings, forefather of kings. His light in the file Galadriel gives to Frodo wards off Mordor's darkness. In the vast Silmarillion backstory, he carries the last Silmaril, a jewel-preserving, unsullied, Edenic light, seeking aid against the primal Dark Lord. His name in The Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion is not Erendel, but Erendil, a trifling variation, you might think, but it is a difference that's utterly pertinent to my topic today. Erendel is Old English, but Erendil is Tolkien's High Elvish language, Quenya. Middle Earth wasn't among the births on the front page of the Times that September day 100 years ago. The closest I can find is an announcement that says, to Mr and Mrs Hope, a daughter. <laughs> it wasn't on page two, though there are plenty of westbound voyages in the shipping adverts printed there. The Times that day is full of reports of war in Belgium, war in France, war in Galicia, War in cities and on steps and across rivers that most readers had never heard of two months earlier. Readers must have felt like Frodo on Amon Hen, the hill of the eye in The Lord of the Rings, when he sees at a glance the vastness of Middle-earth and at the same time how it is overwhelmed by war. This is the troubled world from which Erendel sprang up. The world's extraordinary ferment was matched by Tolkien's creative mood. Two months later, in December 1914, he met up with his closest friends from school in a reunion of their secret society, the TCBS, the Tea Club and Barovian Society, though the origin of the name need not detain us today. This Council of London was followed, as he said, by a tremendous opening up of everything for him creatively. In the first half of 1915, poetry began to flow richly, at the same time, he was beginning to nail down the Quenya language, and with it many of the founding ideas of Middle-earth. The TCBS were the first audience for his poems, 
becoming to Tolkien what the inklings of Oxford were in the 1930s and 40s. Tolkien's authorised biographer Humphrey Carpenter identifies September 1914's The Voyage of Eärendil as the first poem of the mythology. But Tolkien himself did not do so explicitly. He actually gave the label of the first poem of the mythology to one written ten months later, July 1915's The Shores of Faerie. Is that on your list? No. I'll read it out. This is part of it. East of the moon, west of the sun, there stands a lonely hill. Its feet are in the pale green sea, its towers are white and still. Beyond Taniquatil in Valinor. No stars come there but one alone that hunted with the moon. For there the two trees naked grow that bear night's silver bloom, that bear the globed fruit of noon in Valinor. This has enduring Middle-earth elements such as the two trees, but also has names such as Valinor and Taniquatil in his invented languages, the genuine hallmark of his legendarium. However, there is evidence that Tolkien saw the voyage of Eärendil as the pivotal moment. I'd like to claim credit for detective work here, but in fact it was all down to my mum, who has never read a word of Tolkien in her life. In the Notion Club Papers, an unfinished 1945-46 story, Tolkien depicts an Oxford club of conversationalists who get drawn by visionary means into a lost Atlantean past. Tolkien wrote this whilst moving through the climactic chapters of The Lord of the Rings and used it to develop his Middle-earth myth of Numenor, the Downfallen. Among the story's wonderful touches is the moment when one character sees, in a kind of double exposure, with a temple in Numenor that has been invested by the Dark Lord Sauron, the smoke of bloody sacrifice pouring from the lantern of the dome of the Radcliffe camera. It doesn't take a genius to figure out that the Notion Club is a thinly disguised inklings, and it's intriguing to see Tolkien linking his own circumstances with a created world he likes us to think was strictly devoid of autobiographical elements. In one particular detail, the match between life and fiction comes very close indeed. One member, Laudum, quotes lines from the Anglo-Saxon poem Christ, Eala erendel engler beochtost over midan hirad monum sended. And he adds, Hail erendel, brightest of angels, above the middle earth sent unto men. When I came across that citation in the dictionary, I felt a curious thrill as if something had stirred in me half-wakened from sleep. There was something very remote and strange and beautiful behind those words, if I could grasp it far beyond ancient English. Humphrey Carpenter puts these fictional words into Tolkien's own mouth. A sleight of hand, but not an outrageous one. Tolkien is plainly putting his own memory into the head of Alwyn Arundel Laudum, He's also doing some pretty obvious signposting with those names. I don't need to explain Arundel, it's the name of a real town in Sussex, but its purpose in the Notion Club papers is to remind us of the names Eärendil and Eärendil. Alwyn is a version of the Old English Alfwinner, connecting this character with the Elf Friends, because that's what Alfwinner means in Old English. The Elf Friends in Tolkien's Legendarium, notably the Mariner who hears and records the lost tales of the elves in an early phase of the Silmarillion. 
But what about the surname Loudham? Christopher Tolkien, editing this, this, uh, the Notion Club papers, notes that the fact that Loudham is loud and makes jokes often at inappropriate moments derives from Hugo Dyson. That's the inkling who famously kiboshed readings of The Lord of the Rings by complaining, oh God, not another elf. <laughs> There's a, a much ruder version of this, but I'm told it's apocryphal. <laughs> and indeed, one manuscript has Dyson's initials next to the name in Tolkien's hand. But as Christopher Tolkien observes, Loudham is the very antithesis of Dyson in his learning and interests. In fact, the character who voices J.R.R. Tolkien's memory of discovering the name Erendel is more like an alter ego of the author himself. Now, this is where my mum comes in. I happen to be showing her a map of the area just east of Nottingham, the location of the village of Gedling, where Tolkien was staying when he wrote The Voyage of Erendel, The Evening Star. Rather randomly, she read out the name of a neighbouring village, Loudham. It's spelt L-O-W-D, exactly like the name of Alwyn Arundel, Loudham. The village was a pleasant spot, just the right distance for a Sunday walk from Gedling, where Tolkien was staying in September 1914. So, Loudham of the Notion Club not only speaks Tolkien's memory of the 1914 Erendel discovery, but is named for the immediate area of the poem's composition. And there's further corroboration, I think. As the title suggests, the Notion Club papers purports to comprise the minutes of the club meetings and the like, rediscovered many years later and edited for publication. How very Oxford. And on the fake title page Tolkien drew for the Notion Club papers... The date of publication is 2014. Surely here he was thinking consciously, as we are now, of the centenary of Middle-earth and identifying its beginning as the poem he wrote on the 24th of September 1914. The light of Erendel shines through the internal history of Middle-earth, from the two trees all the way to Frodo's star glass, but here surely we see it shining through the external history too. Yet there are still vital ingredients missing from the voyage of Erendel, the evening star. The poem has a basic connection with the later story of Erendil, the idea of a mariner who sails over the brink of the world and becomes the evening star. But the September 1914 Erendel lacks all clear motive for his voyage, lacks a history of any sort, lacks a Silmaril, and even lacks an elvish name. Nonetheless, autumn 1914 was the turning point, the moment Tolkien stepped onto the threshold of Middle-earth. Today, I want to look more closely at the turning point and see if we can understand what exactly happened, identify the chemical reaction that began this explosion of creativity. In particular, I'll look at Tolkien's statement that it was just as the 1914 war burst on me that I made the discovery that legends depend on the language to which they belong, but a living language depends equally on the legends which it conveys by tradition. What does he mean by that? How did he make the discovery? Did it all come from nowhere with this one poem, The Voyage of Erendel, The Evening Star? And if so, where do the invented languages come from? Three salient facts must be stated about who Tolkien was before autumn 1914. The first fact remained true of the older, familiar Tolkien. He was intelligent, imaginative, and creative, 
particularly with regard to languages, which he invented as a hobby. But in two other key respects, he was quite unlike the famous author and academic we know. Though he could write clever verse and amusing prose, see, for example, his minutes as secretary of the Stapleton Society at Exeter College, he did not particularly see himself as a writer. And though he loved Old English and related literatures and languages, at Oxford from October 1911 until spring 1913, he had studied Latin and Greek. To explain what happened will involve some exploration backwards in time. Tolkien had soon grown bored with the Oxford course in classics. In his first year, he only borrowed one classics title from the library at Exeter College. And he was certainly more interested in the other two books he also borrowed the same day, The English Dialect Grammar by Joseph Wright and a pioneering Finnish grammar by Sir Charles Eliot. It was this book about the Finnish language which awoke Tolkien to a linguistic flavour which seemed to him richer than he had ever tasted. In his final year or so at school in Birmingham, he had already fallen in love with the Finnish Kalevala, a verse cycle of myth and folktale published in 1849, pieced together like a patchwork from songs sung by generations of Finnish folk singers. He remembered the feeling of discovery. You're, you are at once in a new world and can revel in an amazing new excitement. You feel like Columbus on a new continent or Thorfinn, the Icelandic explorer, in Vinland the Good. Alongside the air of rather primitive magic and atmosphere of great northern spaces, he had been struck by the beauty of names such as Vainamoinen, Lemminkainen, Kulavo and Ilmarinen. He was rather less impressed by the English edition he read, published in 1907 by Everyman and translated by W.F. Kirby. Opening Eliot's Finnish grammar, Tolkien came face to face with the language of the original. He recalled it as a sensation at least as full of delight as first looking into Chapman's Homer, a reference to the famous lines by John Keats about discovering the Iliad and Odyssey in English translation. Tolkien's undergraduate course could not compete. He recalled that his love for the classics took 10 years to recover from lectures on Cicero and Demosthenes, whose political oratory featured among the set texts for his mid-course exams on a moderation. Instead, he tried to master the finish of the Kalevala. When honor mods should have been occupying all my forces, he later recalled, he made a wild assault on the stronghold of the original language and was repulsed at first with heavy losses. There were other distractions too. Back in 1910, at the age of 18, he had been in love with Edith Bratt, a beautiful, lonely, musically talented 21-year-old living in the same Birmingham lodging house. But his guardian, Father Francis Morgan, had forbidden any contact. On the 3rd of January 1913, turning 21 and becoming master of his own destiny, Tolkien immediately wrote to her where she now lived in Cheltenham, found she was engaged to someone else, but quickly won her back. All this happened less than eight weeks before Mons. Just ten days before the exams, a horrifying and unexpected tragedy struck close to home. Tolkien was living on the top floor of Staircase 7 off the front quad of Exeter College and on the ground floor lived Sidney Cohen, a heavy reader who would work into the small hours on his English literature studies. 
On the 17th of February, Cohen was in his rooms, two flights below Tolkien's, talking to a friend, when he took a revolver from the desk drawer. He said he wished he had the courage to shoot himself, toyed with it for a few moments, then abruptly raised it to his temple and fired. Cohen died minutes later. We don't know if Tolkien was in the house at the time, but one imagines if he had been, he would have heard. His reaction is not known, but in the following days he visited Edith in Cheltenham, and we may reasonably suppose that one motive for the visit was to confide in her after the shock of his near neighbour's suicide. Amidst all this, Tolkien arguably did quite well to achieve a second in mods, but he would have got a third if he had not written an excellent paper in his special subject, Comparative Philology, focusing on Germanic languages. This showed his real talent and passion, and so he now switched <coughs> courses to English with emphasis on the history of the language and on Old and Middle English literature. Comparative philology involved comparing elements in English and its related languages, Gothic, Old Norse, Old High German and others, to trace their development from the unrecorded Germanic language from which they had all sprung. Of particular interest to philologists of the era were names in legend. Where did they come from? By comparing the legends of different Germanic peoples, was it actually possible to reconstruct the beliefs of their common ancestors who had lived before any, traditions were, any such traditions were actually written down? Scholars had applied the process to the name Erendel, which appears in those lines in the old English poem Christ that had so thrilled Tolkien. In that poem, Erendel refers to the evening or morning star, probably as a symbol of John the Baptist. However, various Germanic traditions feature the character with related names, Aurevandil, Orendel, Orentil, and others. Now, as it happens, Erendel and the other cognate names are all discussed under the heading Orendel Saga in an essay collection, Hermann Powell's Grundriss der Germanischen Philologie which Tolkien borrowed from Exeter College Library in June 1914. The Orendel Saga essay makes clear that the heroes sharing these cognate names had associations with star myths. But the names, it argues, must be connected with the Old Norse word our, moisture, wetness, and Old English er, sea, ocean, wave. Thus, the Ur hero behind these divergent later traditions is revealed, the essayist argues, as a wanderer upon the waters, a seafarer, the central figure in a Germanic mariner myth now lost, corresponding to but not deriving from the classical myth of Ulysses or Odysseus. He certainly belongs among the oldest Germanic heroes, writes the essayist. The imaginative Tolkien yearned for more than could be precisely discovered by philology. Going a stage beyond reconstruction, in the voyage of Erendel, the evening star, he built a narrative that might have given rise to all these divergent traditions of stars and sea. Now the Finnish Kalevala comes in because it too may have helped shape Tolkien's poem. Erendel sails over the rim of the world into the sky, rather as the Finnish primal shaman figure Vainamoinen takes his copper boat and sails away to loftier regions to the land beneath the heavens, in Kirby's translation. In these same weeks of late 1914, 
Tolkien was either immersed in the Kalevala or shortly about to return to it, as we'll see. There's more in the brew, though, and from some surprisingly latter-day sources. In fact, Erendel's sailing is closer to Hiawatha's than to Vinamoinen's. If Tolkien was not already aware of similarities in the final canto of the Song of Hiawatha, he would have learned from Kirby's notes to the Kalevala that Longfellow also makes Hiawatha depart in a boat after the conclusion of his mission. The Kalevala mentions neither the direction nor the timing of Vainamoinen's unhurried departure, <coughs> but Eärendil and Hiawatha both speed towards the splendour of the westering sun. While his people wail their sad farewells, Hiawatha heads for the portals of the sunset, and his boat seems lifted high into that sea of splendour. You'll see these poems compared on the handout. Erendel passes into the sky through the door of night, hearing the laughter and weeping of the people of earth. And that's not all. As Professor Hugh Brogan has pointed out to me, Erendel sprang up from the ocean's cup in the gloom of the mid-world's rim is remarkably reminiscent of Percy Bysshe Shelley's Arathusa arose from her couch of snows in the Acrosauronian mountains. The metre is close, the rhyme scheme identical. The phrasing is even nearer in Tolkien's final version, Eärendil arose where the shadow flows at ocean's silent brim. I can't help recalling Tolkien's first ever published poem, The Battle of the Eastern Field, which parodies Macaulay's Lays of Ancient Rome, a piece of Victorian heroic verse set in pre-Roman Italy. <coughs> this is Macaulay. Ho, trumpets sound a war note. Ho, lictors clear the way. The knights will ride in all their pride along the streets today. And this is Tolkien. Ho, rattles, sound your war note. Ho, trumpets loudly bray. The clans will strive and gory writhe upon the field today. Yes, the Battle of the Eastern Field is about a school rugby match. <laughs> Though the voyage of Erendel, on the other hand, is clearly no parody, I think it shows Tolkien pragmatically taking an existing poem as the template for his new myth. Like the Battle of the Eastern Field, the voyage of Erendel quickly veers away from its model in virtually every aspect of phrasing and narrative event, yet there are under underlying commonalities with Shelley's poem. Both Eärendil and Arethusa are myths of origin for natural phenomena involving transformation and fearful pursuit. Shelley's poem retells the Greek myth in which the Nereid Arethusa flees from the river god Alpheus under earth and sea to become a very real fountain on the island of Ortigia. Tolkien's tells of a mariner sailing off the edge of the world, being hunted by the moon and finding his place among the heavenly bodies as the planet Venus. Tolkien also added a few phrasings from classical texts such as Virgil's Aeneid and from the old English epic Beowulf. Most importantly, the name Erendel anchors the poem in Germanic rather than classical tradition. Rather than plagiarism, the poem amounts to a bold act of cultural reappropriation, a counterblow to the dominance of classical mythology and English literary reimaginings of the remote past. 
by setting up as rival to classical myth a North European one imaginatively, reconstru imaginatively re reconstructed from glimpses of real medieval texts, Tolkien set one foot on the threshold of his lifelong creative project. However, something was still missing, the role of invented language. The other, this other footfall has hitherto been identified as the explicitly mythological Quenya lexicon Tolkien seems to have begun in 1915, a notebook of the language of the elves that appeared to have sprung from nowhere, like Australopithecus from an ape or even a shrew. But the missing link can now be identified. This other footfall then came in something else Tolkien was writing that autumn 100 years ago. The story of Colovo, his prose retelling of a tale from the Kalavala. The story of Colovo wasn't published until 2010, but now we can examine and see in it the process of Tolkien's own transformation becoming much, much clearer. As we will see, Longfellow's poem also has a bearing on the story of Colovo. So it's worth scrutinising the background to any influence. Tolkien recalls that stories of Red Indians, as he called them, had appealed to him in childhood with their bows and arrows and strange languages and glimpses of an archaic mode of life and, above all, forests. Hiawatha was not remotely as unfashionable in Tolkien's youth as it has been, and there was certainly then no lobby condemning it for misappropriation of Native American myth. In 1912, the finale of Exeter Music Society's summer concert was The Death of Minnehaha, Longfellow's words set to music by Samuel Coleridge Taylor as part of the Hiawatha Trilogy, which was a mainstay of early 20th century English choral repertoire. And Tolkien's copy of the concert programme is preserved in his papers at the Bodleian Library. Still... Tolkien gave Hiawatha short shrift in a talk that November to students at Corpus Christi College, Oxford, on the Kalevala, the November of 1914. Longfellow's meter was pirated, he said, from the Finnish epic. As was the idea of the poem and much of the incident, though none of its spirit at all. It was a bowdlerising of the Kalevala, coloured, I imagine, with disconnected bits of Indian lore and perhaps a few genuine names. However, as that phrase, I imagine, indicates, Tolkien was hardly presenting a careful critique. In fact, he appears to be borrowing criticisms expressed by Kirby in his introduction to the Everyman Kalevala. Everything Tolkien criticises is there in Kirby. In fact, Longfellow's glossary of exotic and musical names, a guide to an animistic natural world, might well have fascinated the young Tolkien. So might Longfellow's entire project, an attempt to form a coherent cycle of legend from multiple folklore sources. The glossary and the project alike may echo the Kalevala, but equally they formed a popular precedent for what Tolkien himself was about to begin. Many other particular facets of Hiawatha may have held an appeal for him, from the fellowship between Hiawatha and his friends to the sympathetic treatment of supposedly primitive 
indigenous peoples to the mix of heroic and subheroic modes. Why the criticism in his November 1914 talk then? Well, Tolkien may simply have been using the famous American poem to whip up interest in the less well-known Finnish one, as if to say, so you think Hiawatha's good? Well, look what I've got for you. It may also be that privately Longfellow both pleased Tolkien and fell short of his ideals, and that by November 1914 he was already beginning to think he might do something in a similar vein, but better. Back at college, Tolkien responded to the war spirit by joining the officer training corps, and he found himself invigorated by military drill in the university parks. He was able to pour some of this energy into the story of Cullivo, which he was working on at the start of Michaelmas term. In Tolkien's version, as in the Finnish original, Cullivo grows up an exile, a slave, and a man whose immense strength and courage mix destructively with rashness. Ultimately, he seduces a woman he meets in his travels, and she is pregnant before they realise they are brother and sister. She kills herself, and he follows suit in a marvellous scene invoking his sword to drink his blood. The maverick heroism, youthful romance and despair of the Kalevala story may have struck a chord because of Tolkien's tribulations over Edith. Cullivo and his sister were orphans too. The suicide element may have acquired immediacy and gravity for Tolkien because of Sidney Cohen's death. Superficially, the voyage of Eyr Endel, a poetic attempt to reconstruct a lost tale, would appear to have little in common with the story of Cullivo, a prose adaptation from the Kalevala. However, not only was Tolkien working on the two pieces within three weeks of one another, but in both pieces he was also impelled by the desire to reconcile disparate and contradictory narrative elements. Elias Lonroot's epic, The Kalevala, was a synthesis pieced together from the songs passed down through the generations by the rune singers of the Karelia district of Finland. In this glorious patchwork, contradictions were still visible. The changes of plot and character made by Tolkien for the story of Kalevo suggest that these irrational omissions and confusions in the Kalevala account were a key attraction for him. They demanded to be set right, as if to reveal or release an underlying story. But there were also points on which the Kalevala did not serve up the dish Tolkien really wanted. In the encounter between Cullivo and his unrecognised sister towards the end, the Kalevala original has an air of uh, crude bathos. Like a character in an American teen movie, he drives up, wheedles the woman into his sledge, forces, her, forces himself onto her, then soothes her by showing off his wealth. Tolkien alters, refines and retunes this uh, to a note of doom-laden tragedy. Long-standing Tolkienian interests are apparent already in the story of Kalevo. The, the protagonist is heroic in his actions against multiple enemies, but also sometimes sub-heroic in his clod-hopping stupidity. The tale is set but one generation from the men of magic. There's a magical gift of three hairs. There is prophecy, there's an inherited blade, and there's reference to trees as herdsmen. The names in the story of Cullivo are the strongest indicator of what lay ahead of Tolkien, however. He embraced the Kalevala's habit 
of providing characters with multiple names and using them interchangeably, so Colovo is also called Sari and several other names. Most extraordinary of all, as the story progressed, Tolkien began to replace the original Finnish Kalevala names with names which sound convincingly Finnish, yet are entirely his own invention. And that invention was the beginnings of the language Tolkien soon called Quenya. Carl F. Hostetter, one of a team slowly publishing Tolkien's vast legacy of notes on his invented languages, was the first to observe the striking similarities between several names in the story of Colovo and elements in Quenya, the language Tolkien first gave to the elves of his legendarium. The divine name Ilu anticipates Iluvatar, Allfather, God in the Silmarillion. Several words for sky or heaven foreshadow Manwe, Lord of the Angelic Powers, or Valar. Russia is called Kemenume, the Great Land, which appears to combine Kemen, soil, and Ume, related to Umea, large, elements listed in the Quenya lexicon Tolkien was working on by the spring of 1915. So Hostetter's observations show how the invented words and names in the story of Colovo might aptly be termed Urquenya, though right now Tolkien would not have used the word Quenya or known where the invention of this new language would lead him. I would argue that the names of the hero and his sister in the story of Colovo are even more interesting. Sari is a shortening of Sari Honto, which appears also as Sake Honto, and none of these is translated. But Sari does appear in the Book of Lost Tales, the first version of Tolkien's Silmarillion, where it is a name for the sun. And Sake might also be compared to the Quenya root Saha or Sahya, be hot. Meanwhile, Honto anticipates a very enduring sound sense association in Quenya, also seen in Treebeard's curse word for the orcs in The Lord of the Rings, Sinka Honda, flint-hearted. So Colovo's byname can reasonably be interpreted to mean something like heart of fire or heart's fire. Colovo's sister's name, Wanona, likewise has no, ba no basis in the Kalevala, where she is not even named. However, it sounds remarkably similar to Wenona, the name of the hero's mother in the Song of Hiawatha. In the Lakota tradition used by Longfellow, Wenona indicates a firstborn daughter, but Tolkien translates Wanona as weeping, perhaps influenced by Wahonowin, the word of lament which Winona's mother, Nokomis, cries over her when she dies. Other name parallels between Tol Tolkien's legendarium and Longfellow's epic include Ose and Owen, god and goddess of the sea in the Lost Tales, and Oseo and Owini, the evening star and his wife in Hiawatha. And there are plot parallels too, not directly symmetrical, but nevertheless suggesting the pervasive influence of Longfellow on the story of Colovo. Colovo and Winona are born in exile, captives of their father's murderer. Winona is also born in exile after her mother, Nokomis, a married woman, is cast down from the moon. Both Winona and Winona are wayward girls who wander alone where others do not go. In scenes where flowers act as symbols of fragile innocence, 
the prairie lilies among which Wenona lies down, the forest flowers which Wanona plaits into a garland, both succumb to the advances of an inappropriate suitor, respectively Kolovo himself and Mujikiwis, the west wind. As a result of these wrongful wooings, both die in emotional torment. Tolkien seems to have recognised a tragic strain in Hiawatha <coughs> that he could infuse into his version of Kalavo's story, where the Kalavala original is so brash. The weaving in of elements from other stories would not be especially surprising in any author, and Tolkien was doing much the same in The Voyage of Erendel with its echoes of Shelley, Virgil and Beowulf. But inserting made-up names in, into an adaptation, and what's more, made-up names from a made-up language, is eccentric. What can Tolkien have been thinking? Surely, he did not mean to fool anyone that Sare Honto, Wanona, etc., were actually Finnish, if he envisaged the story of Colovo having an audience anyway. He cared too much about hard linguistic facts to do that, nor can he have meant to pluck the events of the story completely out of their Finnish context, otherwise he would not have persisted in using genuine Kalevala names, including Colovo itself. Or at least he cannot quite yet have meant to do that. The likeliest answer is that he inserted his Urquenya names because he couldn't help himself. The whole adaptation was a private exercise, so it did not seem to matter if he played a private language game in it. Creating languages had been a hobby since childhood and had latterly reached a pitch of some sophistication in an attempt to record an unrecorded, I'm sorry, in an attempt to invent an unrecorded Germanic language but his intoxication with Finnish had taken hold, and as he said, his own language or series of invented languages became heavily Finnicised in phonetic pattern and structure. This seems to have been what was going on in the background in the autumn of 1914. In the story of Kolovo, as it seems for the first time, he was extending his private game or craft of language invention by placing the language inside a narrative. Urquenya had set up home in story, and in so doing had become, begun to change from a conlang, as such things are called these days, into an artlang. However, the story in question was borrowed more or less wholesale. However much Tolkien tinkered with it and peppered it with hints of Longfellow, it remained plainly and avowedly an adaptation of the original Colorvo story. Nestling alongside the Kalavala events and names, the Urquenya elements are like cuckoo chicks smuggled into another bird's nest. Tolkien must have gradually come to realise this was not their true home, and that may well be a reason why he abandoned the story close to its tragic ending. Nevertheless, the combining of story with invented language clearly delighted him. With this combination, including this particular Finnish-flavoured language, he was on the track he was to pursue the rest of his creative life. It was as crucial a step as the voyage of Erendel with its reconstructed Germanic figure, and with it he placed his second foot on the threshold of Middle-earth. As far as inventing narratives was concerned, he surely did not foresee the mastery he would eventually achieve and his influences and sources were rather transparent even in something ostensibly new like the voyage of Erendel. 
but he had proven to himself that the language he was now creating could be used to flavour a story and furnish it with a meaningful nomenclature. He may not yet have realised the potential of all this, but the next few years were to demonstrate that if he tore out all the original Finnish names from the Colovo narrative, he would give himself much greater freedom to chop and change the story, strip away unwanted elements, insert new ones of his own devising, and combine the whole lot with parts of completely unrelated legends. That is precisely how, about four years later, Tolkien used Quenya and then its younger invented sibling language, Goldogrin, the prototype for Sindarin in The Lord of the Rings, in creating the tragic tale of Turin Tarambar out of elements of the stories of Finnish Kolovo and Germanic Sigurd, now published in its fullest form in The Children of Hurin, easily the darkest Middle-earth book on the market, the story of Turin was from the outset liberated from its influences and Tolkien's distinctive nomenclature is crucial to this freedom. Meanwhile, the voyage of Erendel had given creative reign to a theory that could justify taking such liberties with actual myth, legend and folktale. Tolkien could use his philological skill and imaginative powers to reconstruct the lost narratives that might have given rise to our diverse recorded traditions. This is the theory that was to underpin the Book of Lost Tales, begun in earnest in late 1916 after the Battle of the Somme, in which we may interpret, to take one example among many, Turin as the originating figure behind the, le- the traditions of a grim and fated hero figure in very different Finnish and Germanic legends. One final intellectual element, apparently not clear in Tolkien's mind when he wrote the story of Colovo, would provide a proper rationale for the use of an invented language in a story. The rationale makes its first appearance in his November 1914 talk on the Kalevala at Corpus Christi College, the one where he had been so dismissive of Longfellow. Here he recognised that Finnish had individual qualities quite impervious to translation and is a language separated by a quite immeasurable gulf in method and expression from English, as he put it. This is partly because Finnish springs from the Finno-Ugric linguistic family, rather than from the Indo-European family that English, German, Latin, Greek and others belong to. Tolkien argued in his Kalevala talk that the Scandinavian, Celtic and Greek myths possess something akin to one another, that there is something kindred in the imagination of the speakers of Indo-European languages. The legends that had grown with the languages were root and leaf, the same tree. Likewise, the Kalevala was finished to the core of its living fibres. In many ways, this is the logical conclusion of the scholarly philology of Tolkien's day with its desire to trace both words and legends back through time. But it became explicitly and excitingly clear to Tolkien suddenly in these few months, 100 years ago. This intellectual element then, glimpsed in that November 1914 talk, was the realisation, in the quote I mentioned at the start, that legends depend on the language to which they belong, but a living language depends equally on the legends which it conveys by tradition. 
in the Quenya lexicon and the poems of 1915 to 16, and then in the Book of Lost Tales from the winter of 1916 to 17, he put this rationale into practice, and he continued to do so for the rest of his life. In the autumn of 1914, the story of Calavo, side by side with the voyage of Eärendil, had steered Tolkien to the realisation that he would need to invent his own stories with their own languages, the underpinning creative principle of Middle-earth. It was 40 years before Tolkien's method bore fruit for all to see with the publication of The Lord of the Rings. He wrote to his son Christopher, Nobody believes me when I say that my long book is an attempt to create a world in which a form of language agreeable to my personal aesthetic might seem real, but it is true. An inquirer among many asked what The Lord of the Rings was all about and whether it was an allegory. And I said it was an effort to create a situation in which a common greeting would be Elen Sila Lumen Omentielmo, and that the phrase long antedated the book, I never heard any more. <laughs> that Quenya phrase, meaning a star shines on the hour of our meeting, is used by Frodo to greet the first elves the travellers meet in the Shire. But there's a Quenya phrase in The Lord of the Rings which harks right back to the beginnings of Tolkien's mythology. Frodo is in Shelob's midnight lair on the passes of the Land of Shadow. Slowly his hand went to his bosom, and slowly he held aloft the file of Galadriel. For a moment it glimmered, faint as a rising star, struggling in heavy earthward mists. And then, as, it, as its power waxed and hope grew in Frodo's mind, it began to burn and kindled to a silver flame, a minute heart of dazzling light, as though Erendil had himself come down from the high sunset paths with the last Silmaril upon his brow. The darkness receded from it until it seemed to shine in the centre of a globe of airy crystal, and the hand that held it sparkled with white fire. Frodo gazed in wonder at this marvellous gift that he had so long carried, not, not guessing its full worth and potency. Seldom had he had remembered it on the road until they came to Morgul Vale, and never had he used it for fear of its revealing light. Aya Eärendil Elenion an Kalama, he cried, and knew not what he had spoken, for it seemed that another voice spoke through his, clear, untroubled by the foul air of the pit. Another voice? The story offers several possibilities. But from outside the story, we also hear Tolkien's voice and the voice of an Anglo-Saxon poet because Aer Erendil Elenion and Kalama means Hael Erendil, brightest of stars, recalling in the heart of darkness the words of prophecy and hope for redemption voiced in the 8th century poem Christ, Eala Erendil Engler Beochtost, over Medanyard Monum Sendad. Fusing invented Quenya with old English fragment of pre-literate myth, it encapsulates the entire creative breakthrough of late 1914. Frodo's cry in Shelob's lair echoes down the years from the moment light sprang out of the darkness and showed Tolkien the way forward. Thank you.